Hello and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. Today we're going to do something different and ask each other about our feels in this beautiful world of science. It's um, pretty, pretty exciting because Serena comes from a physics background and I come from biology. Yay! The two good Ooh. fields of science. Suck on that chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> the only two good fields. Uh, theology is fine as well, I guess. Um, but yeah, chemistry. Some would say it rocks. Oh gosh, I'm I'm gonna hang <laughs> up the Skype it. call. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, so from what I understand, your research is around mitochondrial diseases, uh-huh. and from what I understand, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> They are. And this is a comment I try to make uh, every single presentation I give. I will attempt mm-hmm. to just slip in the line, the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell, and it's pretty pretty fun because no one thinks this is as funny as I do. Um, <laughs> is that where your sort of understanding of what I've spent the last three years of my life doing ends? Well, I know one more thing about mitochondria, and I'd love to get you to explain this to me. The the one other thing I know is that mitochondria are passed down from your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and mothers will pass their mitochondria down to their children um, and the father doesn't pass on mitochondria. Uh, why is that and how does that work? Um, so typically he doesn't, but there have been cases where we've seen that there's been maintenance of paternal mitochondria, but we think it's very, very rare. And the scientists that have looked into that think that um, retention of paternal mitochondria might actually be associated with disorders because that suggests that your cells aren't very good at getting rid of things that shouldn't be there. Ooh. So basically when a baby is born, uh, about nine months, 40 weeks prior to that, a sperm and an egg got together. And sperm have a lot of mitochondria in them uh, and because they have to swim very fast. And that's why mm. semen is full of things like fructose and lots of nutrients. Uh, it's got a lot of B12. So if you're vegan, like, and someone consents to you drinking their semen, like, I think that would probably be a legitimate source of B12 for vegans. But maybe not like... I'm gagging. Maybe not like the best one. <laughs> like, could also take tablets. Yep. Could, like, not... One of those tablets made off though, eh? <laughs> It's like Soylent It's like Soylent Green, but worse. <laughs> Vitamin B12 tablets are, are semen. You heard it here first, folks. Oh, God. We have to say that that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. We have to say that, true. to the best of our knowledge, there's not 100% semen shitting, uh, in your vitamin B12 tablets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On my honour as a scientist, probably not. <laughs> but basically, because the egg is so big... um. And that's where sort of the sperm lands. All the sperm really has in it is like genetic material, a bunch of mitochondria to make it swim really fast, and then like the mechanisms to make it swim really fast. Within the egg, that like there's lots of nutrients, there's lots of stuff for cell growth, there's lots of, there's all this other kind of stuff, and there's a lot of mitochondria because like that's where, you know, all cells need mitochondria, otherwise they're not mm. good at being cells for humans. For bacteria, you don't need mitochondria because you're a bacteria. Mm-hmm. And so when the sperm and the egg combine and um, DNA starts combining and actually making cells, 
the mitochondria from the sperm either get left outside of the egg or they're just selectively destroyed. And that's something that's probably been a result of natural selection. Like, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good. It just means it's more neutral than whatever else might happen. Mm -hmm. And so all of the mitochondria in the egg are what you get as a baby. You get all your mitochondria from your mom. Cool. So that's fun, I guess. (laughs) Oh, I guess before um, we go any further, for for our listeners out there, could you give like a quick brief on what mitochondria actually is, apart from being, you know, the powerhouse of the cell? Well, so mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Yes. Um, <laughs> you might not know, but basically, actually, okay, you probably know the first bit of what I'm going to say, but I'm going to get more complicated as we get through there. Mm. Every part yeah. of your body is made up of cells, or it's made up of things that cells have made. So like your hair isn't cells, but cells made your hair. Your fingernails aren't cells, Mm. they're just like solid protein, but cells made your fingernails and your fingernail bed is full of cells. Inside cells, there's like little compartments. So like, imagine if your sock drawer was actually organized, like I do regularly and often. (laughs) Yeah, like even like drawers in a dresser, right? You put Mm. your t-shirts in one drawer, you put your socks in another drawer, you put your pajamas in another drawer. Cells do that. Cells put all of their genetic material in one drawer, and that's called the nucleus. Um, they put stuff for secreting proteins from the cell into another drawer, and that's the Golgi body. And they put everything for making energy and sort of everything associated with that into another drawer, and that's the mitochondria. And that's hmm. sort of what the mitochondria does. It has lots of other roles, and they're all sort of tangentially related to energy generation, but that's because cells are super complicated and terrible to work on. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's interesting, because... From the little that I have read, I've always imagined mitochondria to be this this almost like mini helper cell within a cell that is very good at doing its own thing and like has its own DNA. That might be a mis- is that a misconception? No, it it has its own DNA. So the mitochondria has like a little chunk of its own DNA, and this is where I often get asked. So I'll say that I work on mitochondria disorders, and people be like, mm. "Oh yeah, you get those from your mum, right?" But actually, the mitochondria has, like, a tiny bit of DNA compared to, like, the rest of your nuclear, like, your genetic material. Mm. And so the mitochondria require the presence of nuclear material in order to, like, build everything that mitochondria needs to build. So, like, you have your genetic material, your DNA, that's just, like, the code that sort of underlies everything a cell does. Um mm. And then that gets turned into proteins, which are things like hairs and nails and everything that the mitochondria needs to actually make energy. The mitochondria can't just, like, wave its DNA about and be like, ta-da, energy. It has to actually turn all that into proteins. But it doesn't have the code for all of those proteins on its own DNA. It has to get some from the nuclear material, and that gets sort of, like, passaged across the cell and given to the mitochondria, and the mitochondria makes it. It's all good and great. I forgot where I was going with this. I was, like, on a real roll, and I just, like... It's, this is all fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> this is all good. Oh, I'm really glad. I've been studying it for three years, and I still, like, really like it, so I get a bit worried that, like, other people will just be like, Sophia, this is so boring. No. Just tell me no, if I should like... eat blueberries or not. Like, come on, man. <laughs> That's such a good sign, though, that, like, you could study something for that long and still be totally into it. That's a good sign. I think part of it is, like, there's still so much we don't know. And, like, that's really frustrating, like, as a scientist. I'll be like, I'm studying a very small part of a small problem, which we'll get onto Mm. in a little bit. But, like, I want to know how something else in the mitochondria or a cell or, like, in a method works. And so I'll, like, look it up and I'll look at papers and I'll read, like, five different scientific papers and they'll be very dry and badly written. And my outcome will be like, oh, we don't know. 
And like that kind of makes yeah. me want to tip over a chair when I need that information to do something. But it's also what keeps me interested in this. Cause like I am, yeah. I'm creating new information with what I do. That's baller. Mm. Yeah. But that, that's just how science is. And that's like the, the good and the frustrating part of science is that, you know, so many of what we do, even though like we're doing, we were doing completely different areas of research. Mm-hmm. I feel exactly the same way as that. Like you complete your research and you're like, I don't know any more than I did before, except the fact that this small avenue that I went down doesn't quite work. <laughs> and that's, and that's it. Was it Socrates that was like, the only thing I know is that I know nothing? I'm not sure, but that's quite accurate. Is that, the, well, I'm it's like, gonna double the check more it you know. I know that from a meme, but <laughs> where Socrates is like, the only thing I know is that I know nothing, and Socrates' friend Dylan is like, fuck him up, Socrates! Memes are so educational. They're so great. <laughs> Memes have taught everyone I know, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Socrates, is that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Which is just like so beautiful. Is that <laughs> I tell people I work on mitochondria disorders, and they're like, "Oh yeah, the mitochondria—it's the powerhouse of the cell." And it's like, "Yes, good, yes, thanks. yes, it is." All right, tell me what your honors project was on. My honors project. Oh, okay. So I was doing a theoretical honors project, which meant that instead of uh, what you do is going to the lab and like work with real tangible material, um, I go into an office. I look at a lot of equations, I write some code to run a lot of simulations on artificial systems, imagined systems, to basically poke around with these systems that would otherwise be very, very difficult to replicate in real life, and see what they do, essentially. Um, And the system that I was looking at were, it's this material called a Bose-Einstein condensate. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Have you heard of that? Uh, sort of. I was very into physics for a long time, but you should explain it properly because I'm sure our listeners would love to know. And it's not that I forgot it. <laughs> it's. I'm just wondering, like, where I should start. This is the other weird thing about um, going into scientific research for a while and going really deep into a subject is that you kind of get, you lose your um, your sense of where public knowledge is, and you lose your sense of like where layman. Because I don't want to be patronizing I don't want to start too simple but I also don't want to start like way too complex so anyway Bose-Einstein condensates could be thought of ish as a kind of different state of matter Um, they're essentially a bunch of atoms cooled down really 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 cold like very very close to absolute zero and when they pass through this they call it a critical temperature it's just like some arbitrary, really, really cold temperature, depending on what atoms you're working with. When they go below, they dip below this temperature, they start to take on really interesting quantum properties. And when I say quantum properties, say you have, I don't know, like a bag of plastic, like ball pit balls, and they're all the same color. And essentially they're all the same, but if you zoom in, if you, you know, look at the balls individually, they are unique. You know, one ball is not like the other, even though they're basically the same thing. And it's kind of like that with atoms. When you zoom in on atoms, like, 
a gold atom here is the same as a gold atom there, except they might be doing different things. They might be in different energy states. They might be vibrating differently. They have like this intrinsic identity to them, essentially. And you can think of that as what we call the wave function. It's just like what they're up to on the inside. <laughs> and when you dip these atoms below this temperature, they all suddenly undergo like an identity crisis. And they all start behaving exactly the same. Okay. So all their wave functions are identical. And so you get this like big glob of extremely coherent matter. And so when you poke something that coherent, really interesting things start happening. And that's very broadly what a Bose-Einstein condensate is. And what I was looking at was, much like you, a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of... Um, of the subject, I was looking at spin one spinner condensates, which are atoms that have basically have some a little bit of magnetism. They they're like tiny, tiny, teeny little magnets. Mm -hmm. And I was specifically looking at spin one Bose-Einstein condensates, which means that they have a spin of one. There's things with spin of twos and threes, and it gets more and more complex the more angular momentum these have, but I was just looking at like teeny tiny sliver of that, and I was specifically looking at what happens when you punch it in the face, essentially. <laughs> okay. So like using a um, collider? Not a collider. It's... So if you imagine... Just like physically punching it then, just like slam. Oh yeah, I can see how that would be confusing. I wasn't punching it with other, other particles. Um, okay. It was, it's called a quench, and it's kind of like when you, when a blacksmith has a really hot sword, mm -hmm. and they dip it into cold water, so it brings the temperature down really, really fast, that hardens the steel and takes it through a different phase transition than it would if you were just to let that steel cool down naturally. Okay. Yeah. So I was looking at taking these spinner condensates and changing the magnetic field around them really, really fast, and just, like, giving the whole system a kick. Okay, and seeing what they do. Yeah, and just seeing what happens. It's kind of weird trying to explain this research, because it's, it's so devoid of anything that we intuitively know physically, like, in the real world. Like, I can't liken this. <laughs> I mean, my next question was going to be, like, okay, so it's really good to figure out the effects of quenching on spin one particles of Bose-Einstein condensates. That's the collection of words. <laughs> what is the practical application of that? And it can be like very long-term practical application. Like no one ever mm. shuts off about how quantum research discovered Wi-Fi or whatever. So oh my like, gosh. At, at the end of the journey of that path of research, is there a practical application? Like what does it apply to? I don't know. And this is... <laughs> This is the hard selling point, right? This is the very yeah. hard selling point when you're talking about fundamental research in physics. This is the hard selling point when you're talking about in research in math, even, is that we really can't know what the technological implications of what we find are. Mm. And for the longest time, I mean, like, when, when people were working on quantum physics in, like, the 1920s, no one was thinking, like, computers were barely a thing back then. Yeah. So no one, no one thought, oh, this might have, you know, some implication. Like, 
the thing with fundamental research is that we are so far ahead in, in the fringe of what is physically possible and what we understand about the the most fundamental roots of our reality that we just we just have no idea. So I'm I'm always impressed when like I hear about my supervisor writing funding grants and stuff because it's like I would have no idea how to sell <laughs> these research proposals apart from the fact that like oh it seems pretty cool <laughs> like yeah, yeah yeah well I mean would there be applications of things like um superconductors or uh industrial work if you can like hmm. so if the, all the separate particles suddenly start behaving the same that yeah. has effects on things like friction and how like you can predict that matter moving and so like it could be an indication that industrial work might be more predictable or standardized at like really Mm. low temperatures or under these particular conditions yeah kind of probably has a bit of a yarn about that eh (laughs) (laughs) so Bose-Einstein condensates are they behave very similar to superconductors and superfluidity Mm -hmm. and those kinds of phenomena but they're they're not that at all. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I guess maybe some similar things. Like the closest thing that I could possibly think about is perhaps some applications within quantum computing. Mm-hmm. But that's still, that is a very baby field. And I'm very wary also, working in physics, I'm very wary to promise anything that's too sci-fi because I feel like, that's a big pitfall around physicists. Biologists do it all the time, though. (laughs) And, I mean, like, I don't want to be the party group, but science is really fucking cool. Like, we're we're doing stuff when we're seeing stuff that no one else has seen or done before, and that's great. And we're, like, contributing to this massive bank of the knowledge of humanity, which is incredible. Uh, But at the same time, it's like, we really need to understand the just how much effort and how much time it takes to get these get these uh, technological leaps and how yeah we we just can't promise anything at the moment. I would like to really quickly talk about how um, superconductors work because I think that's yes! really freaking cool. Yes, please. Yeah, so I made a little zine about this like a few years ago with like tiny little atoms with like baseball caps going on skateboards they're really cute anyway superconductors for those of you who haven't heard about them um they're bits of metal and you cool them down and below a certain temperature you run a current through them and the resistance drops to zero yes and i don't mean like near zero i mean like zero like actual zero uh which is kind of unbelievable if you think about it because if you know how resistance works in general, you get a bit of metal and um, you can run some electrons through it, some current through it. If you heat it up, the more you heat it up, the higher the resistance, the harder it is to drive those electrons through. The more you cool it down, the lower the resistance. Uh, um, and that's why, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's why your phone drains its battery faster if it's hot. Oh, maybe. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure, because like, I think... Because it's like, yeah, and like I've seen this in Melbourne, like on hot days, my phone's battery will go down faster than otherwise. And I think it's because like the ambient heat is increasing the resistance of stuff within my phone. Or when it's been running hot for a while. Mm. Actually, that makes sense because um, 
if if it's a hot day, then the CPU or the little computing chip inside your phone or your computer even, that'll heat up and it will be harder to drive the CPU. So you'll need more energy to do the same amount of calculations that you would on a cold day. So yeah, that that does make sense. I never I never thought about that though. That's cool. You never thought about the art, uh, the practical application. No. Oh my gosh, I am very much as a theoretician. <laughs> yeah, I am very much on like the theoretical, borderline math, pure mathematics side of it. Although I will, in my defence, I did talk to uh, one of the math professors at Otago about an, a master's project. And he was telling me about, like, this cool gravitational project he had. And I asked him, what, like, where would we see this phenomena in real life? And he just, like, pauses, and he just looks at me, and he goes, oh, no, this isn't physically possible. (laughs) I was just sitting there, I was just like, then why are we here? (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I still care a little bit about practical application, but that's, that's just, like, classic mathematician joke right there how do you like think about stuff like that though because like okay full disclaimer i would probably care about my work if i never like saw any pictures of people with the disorders or met anyone who was affected by the disorders but like that's Mm. a huge thing to me is being able to like and particularly with the australian mitochondrial disease foundation absolute Mm. ballers pay my phd love them so much through them, I get to interact with people who are personally affected by the diseases I'm working on. And that's so valuable to me. And, like, when I'm having trouble motivating myself, it's like, you know what, it means so much to these people. Like, I do, like, the charity walk for the uh, Mitochondrial Foundation, like, every year. And people at the stops are like, you're doing so much for us, you're doing so well. And it's like, yeah, okay, good. How do you, like, care when it's (laughs) just some particles? Yeah, or if it's just, like, mathematical equations on a page that don't mean anything. Yeah, well, I think, and I have like a pet theory that this is why math, uh, mathematics and physics are considered quote-unquote hard science, even though I hate that term. And my theory is, it's not because these sciences are harder, it's just that the motivation is harder. Because why I went into physics and math is solely for the reason that I really enjoyed solving those problems. And, like, the human motivation behind working in mitochondrial research and working in cancer research and working in biological research in general, that's a that's a great motivation, and you will not find that anywhere, as far as I know, in physics and math. What compels me to show up every day and to you know go back to my a4 refill of scribbles every day is just they're interesting problems they really are and when you read about the more famous mathematical problems such as like the Riemann hypothesis uh which we've talked about and like p versus np and when you read about the interesting theories in physics such as like string theory which is kind of not as popular right now, but is still quite mathematically beautiful. And, you know, the standard model that we have now, when you dive headfirst into these very, very deep, very intricate, very abstract theories, there's a beauty within. There's a beauty within them that's compelling. And I don't know, like, I guess for some people it just, it just calls to you. It's like a, it's like a magnet. You have to, you have to figure it out. You have to like solve the puzzle. You have to 
it's it's a puzzle thing, I guess, and that's that's at least my motivation. But it is something that runs out really quickly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> especially if like you've got other shit going on. Especially like the human part, the social part is incredibly important for just like everyday life in general, and it's hard to get in physics. That's for sure. It intrigues me because I feel like as someone in biological sciences or like anything vaguely tangentially associated to healthcare said mm. what you just said, they would be like pan for being like callous and unfeeling. <laughs> I think like, so I almost applied to do a physics degree when I started mm-hmm. my university career and I finished what I goddamn stopped. So I would have done a physics degree. And the reason I didn't is because I was more likely to be the best at biology. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, entirely my reasoning as to why I did a biology degree. And, I mean, my my feelings right now are more, like, the human element means a lot to me. The fact that I can, like, engage with people and further, like, scientific knowledge in a way that, like, will directly benefit people. That, like, really means a lot to me. But when I started on this path, I was like, mm, I'm more likely to be the best if I do this one. So I'm going to do this one. <laughs> like, and, I mean, the way I've sort of described my interests to people are I'm fascinated by the boring minutiae that control how we work so in biology I was always going to do genetics in physics I was always very interested in particle physics and quantum physics Mm. and quantum mechanics I know a lot about the law particularly like the weird corner parts of the law and like local council bylaws and things like that because like I just like the idea that there are rules for the world Mm. and genetics provides that to an extent like physics certainly provides that to an extent and like when you look at the way humans interact with each other and how like legislature and um, a perceived morality of society inform each other like that all is what I find fascinating I just find it interesting that it's fully really important to me that I have that human interaction that like I am it's, it's great that my research will maybe one day save babies or provide another brick in the pyramid where we end up, like, developing new treatments for mitochondrial disorders. Mm. But what draws me to it isn't that. Like, that helps, but it is the problem. Like, the problem is what calls me to things. I like solving problems. I like getting things that I can make progress on. I think that's almost, like, maybe what everyone wants. Yeah. It's so interesting when you mentioned that you liked how uh, there were rules behind things. Because mm. I do this kind of like it's it's super weird and nerdy but whenever I get I feel too anxious I feel too stressed out I feel like the world is caving in on me um I get out some pen and paper and I go through some of my favorite mathematical proofs and it is the nicest most calming thing that I've found to date and that's that's exactly the the feeling that you've described there is that it feels like order has been restored to the world. It feels like there's some rules behind all the chaos that we're seeing. It feels like there's beauty even behind that chaos. I love you so much. <laughs> I realized, uh, I think three or four weeks ago that the thing 
that ties everything I love together is counting. Mm -hmm. So every single thing I do that calms me down, like there is counting involved in some part of it. So like playing the piano, right? Like you can never stop Mm -hmm. counting. Otherwise you play the piano badly. (laughs) I like going into the lab and doing work. And that's because like, essentially you have a lot of samples. And so you're always like, you're counting things, you're ticking things off. It's just, like, it's soothing to my brain. I used to really like watching timers count down. Mm. That just feels, like, really nice to my head. <laughs> it's it's nice because it's, like, small, tiny steps of incremental and regular progress and over time, and now I'm here, and now I'm at 20, and now I'm at 30. Mm. And, like, I know where this is going. This is good. <laughs> Everything's fine. <laughs> did, you, did you used to really like doing, like, um differentiations or integrations where everything's simplified to like one or zero. Oh my gosh dude that was my crack like <laughs> all throughout <laughs> physics the thing the thing like where you get okay so in second yearish third yearish second yearish you start getting these assignments which is just like essentially integration uh, problems but, you know, it's about wave functions and physics things. But essentially we're just doing math. Let's be honest. Second year physics, it's all math. And you get these, like, entire pages of just just messy, messy, shitty expressions. And it's so tempting to give up because it just looks like a mess. It's terrible. But you keep going. You keep at it. You keep, like, cancelling things out and, like, switching things around and moving things and, like, logically deducing why things should go where, and at the end, at the penultimate step, every single expression, every single term cancels out, and you're left with just one simple thing, and it is, it's like, fucking crack, it's, like, the best feeling you'll ever get in second year physics, is just seeing all of those terms, just, like, crossing all of them out from your page. So good. It's the best thing. It's so good. One of the big problems I've actually faced since, like, leaving high school, so... For anyone who doesn't know, I did come top in final year maths a year early, and I do need everyone to know this because it is possibly <laughs> the high point of my life. Um, but I didn't really keep up with it like I did genetics. There's like some statistics involved, there's some simple equations involved, but there's not a lot of like really heavy maths. And unfortunately, I found calculus very intuitive, and I still get it. Like mm-hmm. I can a lot of the time, if I look at an equation, I will know if it simplifies to one. Like, I will know if everything cancels out, because I'll look at it and my brain will go, and it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Ding, ding. That simplifies nicely. Like, it's either one term or it's just the number one, which is like, okay, cool. But I don't remember how to do anything now. And so <laughs> I can look at a really complicated equation and get the nice buzz, and then I'm like, well, I don't know how to get there. Shit. <laughs> I should have studied properly rather than, like, vibing everything out. <laughs> eh, you don't need to know how to integrate, though. <laughs> but I want to. Like, I'm pretty sure... But what about all those real-world applications of calculus, Serena? Uh, computers. That's that's what we have computers for now. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, this is kind of off-topic, but people complain a lot about how, like, our brains are dying because computers are doing everything for us. And it's like, no, we just, we get to solve harder problems now. Mm-hmm. We get to solve the problems that computers can't solve. And that's totally fine. Like how to effectively market things via social media. Yeah, and how to, like... How to not fuck up a festival. <laughs> oh my god. I read about that today. That's horrific. Oh my god. It's so good. But also, like, I'm getting, like, a weird kind of, like, schoidenfrater from it. Because it's all, it's all rich kids. 
who have paid like 12k to go to a festival. There's a Tumblr post that's like the most important lesson we've learned here is how easy it is to dupe rich people into going to an island. Man, we should start a business that's just like duping rich people. Oh, the dream, right? <sighs> to give us money. You didn't hear that, by the way, listeners. You, you didn't hear anything. You didn't see anything. Hey, wealthy listeners. We never here. Would you like us to help <laughs> you market your content so it goes viral on social media? We can do that <laughs> for a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money. We're young yeah. and cool. Uh, for those listeners out there who don't know what we're laughing about, it's the the uh, shit can trash fire that is, I think it's like fire festival? It is. Fire with a Y? It is. Yeah. You probably, uh, this is probably being aired like months later and you're probably being like, oh wow, yeah, that was ages ago. What a shit show. It will, yeah, it will almost definitely have fallen from the public consciousness by the time this goes out, but... Currently, we're in the middle of it. It's This is a message from the past. It's basically a time capsule. Um, <laughs> and it's just kind of beautiful. I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> well, we were talking about physics for a while, but we can go back to talking about biology if you want. Yeah, so what diseases do mitochondria have? I actually have no idea. Well, the mitochondria don't have the diseases, Serena. You do. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> um, so, mitochondrial diseases. So, start from the top. It's a very good place mm-hmm. to start. Um, mitochondria are implicated in a lot of diseases. So, they're associated with late-onset diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. There's suggestions they're involved in a lot of metabolic disorders. So, things like type 2 diabetes, obesity, um, heart failure associated with metabolic disorders. I don't work in any of those because old people are boring. Well... Because the project I applied for was on childhood disorders, rather. There's a lot of really cool research that's going on in those fields, but it's just not Mm. my particular area. Um, I look at childhood mitochondrial disorders, Mm -hmm. particularly this one called Lee syndrome, which is an early onset neurodegenerative disorder. There's typically an age of onset sort of before the age of five, and 80% of people who have Lee syndrome die before the age of 20. And there's no current consistently Mm. clinically effective treatments for mitochondrial disorders at all. Um, so mm-hmm. my PhD is based on testing treatments and developing new ways of testing treatment. Because, like, in diseases, we don't just, like, get a treatment and go, it seems legit, and then give it to patients. <laughs> um, yeah. What we do is we test it on cells, we test it in animals, and, like, I think this is often a really tough discussion to have. But mm. in my work particularly, like, I am I did two mouse studies, um, one with 20 mice and one with 63 mice. Mm-hmm. And I was incredibly happy with how the animals were treated. I like was in, like I wasn't involved in writing of the ethics for the first one, but I was for the second one, sort of discussing like how we wanted those animals to live. Like I am very happy that they're given a better life than they probably would have had in the wild. And it's also a situation mm-hmm. where, like, we do need to kill mice at the end of these studies in order to get yeah. all of the data we possibly can from them. Mm-hmm. But we do that so that we can save people in the future and I think that's a legitimate calculus to make I realize it's not something that everyone would agree with but it was really important to me to sort of have my morals like chill with regards to the mouse studies like when it comes to euthanasia it is done painlessly it is done when the mice like the mice go under gas and then um the euthanasia takes place and it's made sure that they have like a really high quality of life. And if they look unhappy, then things are done to treat that. Like if a mouse gets an eye infection, they get like eye drops twice a day to like clear that out. Again, like something that wouldn't happen in the wild. Mm. And I realize I've just spent like five minutes talking about animal studies uh, when they 
are actually like a third of my trial, but like it's a really important, it's important part. Yeah, it's a really important stage in yeah. drug development because like treatments can look really good on cells, but if you don't absorb a drug properly, if for example I look at neurological disorders, so like if it doesn't get past the blood brain barrier, like so your brain's real precious, right? Mm-hmm. Your body knows this. There's a thing called the blood brain barrier, which is really difficult for anything except like glucose to get through. And so that's mm-hmm. why a lot of drugs that might sound really promising for something like Alzheimer's, they just, they can't get into the brain. Like they can't do it. Mm. And so that's where a lot of drugs fall down. And that's where like mouse studies are really important in these um, kinds of disorders. Cause like we can get an idea of whether those drugs would be passing the blood brain barrier, whether they are absorbable through the stomach or the small intestine, like what other effects they might have. Mm. I don't think you can base like, lifestyle changes off mouse studies i think like human studies always need to be done for obvious reasons like we're Mm -hmm. quite different to mice um and sort of for context there right like we can cure every type of cancer in mice can't do that for humans oh i didn't know that yeah it's really easy to cure cancer in mice you just like activate t-cells and you're like go for gold have a good time interesting is it because we're bigger or is it because it's because we're more complicated right and again, like mice and that are studied in tests, and like certainly this is an ideal, like they're often clonal, so they're like inbred as you can possibly get. They're very mm-hmm. genetically similar, except for the disorder you're looking at. And you do that because like every element of variability in a scientific experiment adds something that you can't control, and it decreases mm-hmm. the ability of that experiment to tell you anything. And like this is good and bad in the sense that like working on a clonal population of mice will tell you if that treatment could do anything or if it works better than the alternative treatment, which in mitochondrial disorders currently is nothing. When it comes to figuring out the effects the treatment might have on a more realistic population, and I think this is particularly important for like metabolic disorders, late onset disorders, you do need to have a more diverse study population to work in. And there's um, a colleague of mine who's doing like fascinating studies in conjunction with a lab in the US where they're making like, more human-like populations of mice and that sounds very horrifying but it's just essentially like they have greater genetic diversity it's not like they're growing human eyes they are a diverse Mm. population like we are so this is the thing that freaks me out uh, and has always freaked me out about biology as a science is that there is just there are so many variables yeah it's awful right (laughs) it's so many so many variables and i like in any kind of any day I work with maybe three variables, five if I'm feeling like super hardcore. And because I'm doing theoretical physics, like all of these variables are under complete 100% control and I tweak the one that I want and like that's it. But in the real world, so many variables. And you're a variable. Like often my first port of call when a experiment gives a weird result is like, did I fuck up? Was this me? Mm. Like Yeah, just normal human error. That's very tough to deal with, actually, as a um, biologist, and I'm sure for any scientist that does more experimental work, is, like, coming to terms with the fact that, like, sometimes you fuck up, but that Mm. doesn't mean you're a bad scientist. Yeah. I did do some small amount of lab work, and... (laughs) Right. Very small. Like, it was part of the degree, so, you know, minimal amount of lab work. But, like, even those 20, 30, 40 or so sessions, it's, like, you forget to turn on one thing or you point the the laser like 2.25 degrees off or, you know, something silly happens and you've lost an entire day's work. You've lost mm-hmm. an entire week's work. And it's 
it's just how it goes. Because um, I think you had a similar experience. The lab sessions, particularly when you get up to third year at Otago, they are intense. Yeah. For biochemistry, particularly, we were given a problem and it's like, we'll help you through it if you have difficulties, but solve, like, solve this, figure it out. We have some plants, some of them were grown in dark, some of them were grown in light. Figure out like what the difference mm-hmm. in the RNA is. Okay? <laughs> the last, my lads last year were like, maybe we'll let you run a gel. Like, what, what is happening? I did, um, I did one lab in Berkeley, which was, uh, this was the coolest thing I've ever done, probably in my life, which was, uh, we got to measure entanglement. Oh, oh, so cool! Which is so fucking cool. So you, what they do is you get some lasers and, like, you, you shoot some photons and you entangle them and then you measure them at different places and measure the correlation and measure the phase changes and, and you, you measure, you see entanglement. It's it's blowing my mind right now. Like Aww. I can't believe that actually happened. I'm gonna die. But that was that was a lab in which we were like we forgot to turn one of the four things on for a while and like we pointed it slightly in the wrong angle and like we had to come back and do it like eight times. But oh, so worth it in the end, really. I had a lab in um third year uh, microbiology where we essentially like it was an immunology paper and we were basically like curing cancer in rats. Um, mm. in mice, sorry. Um, mice are smaller and easier to house, so they're generally used in place of rats. Oh, cute. And, like, I'm quite confident with experimental work. But when I was a third year, I was also a little bit haphazard. And so the group I was working with, and we all, like, got to do different parts of the experiment, they were like, you should set up the ELISA, which is a way of, like, testing um, what kinds of proteins, I think. Enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. Ooh. But yeah, no, it's for proteins. Um, and so we were, we were setting up this ELISA, and I messed all of it up. Um, <laughs> just like, they were like, Sophia, you should do it. You're so confident. You're so good. And I was like, yeah, seems seems fine. Like, I'll be great at this. Yeah. Nah, ruined the entire experiment. That was great. That was like four people's grades. Oh. Just like, we end up getting, we end up getting quite a good mark, because like, everyone was like, human error needs to be remembered when yeah. doing scientific experiments. And so yeah. we got good marks for that because, like, we accurately criticised the results we got, but it was still just like, oh, no. It's incredible just, like, how much precision, physical precision and, like, hand-eye coordination is involved in doing science. Oh, my gosh. There was, um, there was another project that I worked on, which was I was making some mirror lenses for these, um, these telescopes that were going to go to Chile. And my supervisor at the time was just like okay so we need this this lens at this thickness specifically to the micron level of specificity so what I did was I just sat there for about two hours every night sanding away by hand oh my god that's horrifying and and then like measuring every spot of it every time because you can't sand it with machine because machines Mm. can't get down to like micron level and I was just sitting there thinking, like, I did not think I'd be doing this much physical work inside. <laughs> but here we well, are. Well, like, often, often there's a lot of building stuff. And, like, certainly yeah. where I am at the Murdoch Children's, we have our own, like, engineering group that comes out and fixes stuff for us. But often, like, it's a pain and you have to wait for ages and you have to put in a request. So, like, we'll give it a go. <laughs> like, I've taped stuff up. Um, my yeah. colleague, my uh, the master's junior lab, Cameron, and I are... Very much the, oh, we could probably fix 
it was tape, kind of scientist. <laughs> um, and like, we try and be good and we'll call engineering and then engineering will just fix it with tape. And it's like, well, well if they've done this it with tape. like four hours ago, man. Yeah. Actually, that's something I've like kind of discovered throughout the course of my PhD is like, I could possibly have been quite well suited to a degree in engineering mm. because like, I'm decent at building things and I'm always pretty willing to do it. And like, I certainly followed my favorite engineer around a few times and been like, so can you tell me what you're doing to this machine? It's a, it is a pretty cool field. I feel like what stopped me from going into engineering was like the dealing with people's side of it. <laughs> Cause it's a professional degree, right? Like you have to it is, yeah. deal with clients and whatnot. Yeah. But like most engineers are kind of, uh, I don't want to make too many terrible generalizations. Mm. Um, but I've heard that, like, a lot of engineers aren't that nice to clients. <laughs> oh. They're just kind of like, I'm building you a thing, can you please calm down? <laughs> <laughs> no, my dad was very against me going into engineering. And not like mm. a, I don't want you, my daughter, to go into engineering. Yeah. Or in a, the engineers I work with are dicks, I don't want you to be a dick. <laughs> That's so interesting, because both my parents are engineers, and before I left for uni, the only thing they said to me was, we don't care what you study, just don't do engineering. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. My dad my dad's a town planner, um, and so talks shit about engineers, particularly traffic engineers, a lot of the time. Oh yeah. But that's fine because traffic engineers in Tauranga are bad at their jobs. That sucks. We have traffic lights on roundabouts. Oh, oh. We have like this one roundabout that's like really central to the flow of traffic, particularly at like mm-hmm. three PM. And it's really small. So if there's more than, like, three cars trying to enter that roundabout, like, you just get backed up for, like, 50 blocks. Wow. That's so extra, though. Yeah. Traffic engineering (laughs) is something I don't know anything about. If you become a traffic engineer, try to fuck up less. (laughs) Ruthless. (laughs) Well, this is my advice for most people, to be fair. It's like, have you considered not fucking it up? Oh, my gosh. Or maybe not fucking it up all of the way. Sometimes, like, the only thing I have to say is I just wish people would do their jobs. If only people would do their jobs. <laughs> well, we had that, um... God, I can't remember what episode it was in, but when you were saying, like, you wish you could give the feedback, this work is bad. Yeah. Could it be better? <laughs> and, like, I've been looking after a um a two-year-old for the past five days. Mm-hmm. And so we've had a few conversations where I've just been like, okay, but have you considered doing it better (laughs) and it's generally when he's like crawling up the stairs crying because he doesn't want to go to bed I'm like have you considered maybe walking up the stairs like maybe that would be more comfortable and he's just like no I'm like I mean you could consider it so dramatic Um, it's also it's very sweet though because when he doesn't want to do something he says maybe no um and so I've just started responding with like but maybe yes (laughs) which it's like, I don't know if it's the best approach, but yeah. uh, he will, his parents can deal with that. I don't know. I don't know how small humans work. I'm sure it's fine. I have so much respect for parents now. Oh, yeah. It's been a long week. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically what happened was my cousin, who lives in the same city as me, uh, went into labor about a month early. Ooh. And we had, like, figured out what would happen had she had the baby extracted at the correct time. Mm. We did not have a plan for this. Ah. <laughs> and so I got a call at like 6 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, being like, hey, so oh 
I was like, I can come to the hospital, it's okay. And so I've been hanging out with my baby cousin for, like, the past five days. That's pretty good. And, like, his dad's, his dad's been around a lot to help. Like, his dad's really helped with mornings. Mm. Uh, but I've been doing a lot of bedtimes, which are generally when the waterworks come oh. on and maybe no comes oh. out. I also caught myself using my small child voice a few times at work, <laughs> which was really weird. <laughs> but it has, like, it's given me a lot of sort of insight. Mm-hmm. Into a lot of things. In the sense of, like, so I don't yell at kids, like, ever. Mm. Um, Good rule. Particularly because, like, I've done some teaching with teenagers, and if you yell at teenagers, they just don't listen to you. So it's very good to just be like, you're going to listen to me or you're going to Mm. leave. Like, these are our options. Yes. And so that was really interesting to sort of, like, actually have that work really well. Mm. It was also, like, I really liked looking after him mm-hmm. and I think it's because like I'm autistic and all children want is to have things explained yeah. to them they also want to do like things like watch tv and eat candy all the time and stuff like that well in my cousin's case he wants to eat dried apricots all the time good as well fine okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I can like sit down with him and be like I need you to do this for these reasons yeah. and he might say no but when I say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to insist, like, you can either do this, you know, by yourself, or I can carry you. And then when I pick him up, he'll be like, no, I'll do it by myself. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Like, you're being serious. It's okay. Um, and, like, so that's that's really nice for me, because, like, he's also very clear with what mm-hmm. he wants, and he'll be like, I want this because of this. And if he says something, I can be like, okay, why? What can I do to help? How does this work? And I think that was just, like, really nice. That is good. I just keep thinking about, like, what I wanted as a kid, which is, I'm sure, the same things. is just to, like, be talked to not like a kid, you know? Like, yeah. not in a patronising way. Just be like, what do you want from me? This is why. And that's that's it. It's nice. It's nice when things are simple. It's been exhausting, but, man, I've, like... I. Definitely don't want kids of my own yet. Like, I am not up to that. Mm. And it was quite bizarre suddenly having someone else's needs be more important than my own. It was like, oh. Yeah. Oh, you're more important than me. Oh, this sucks. (laughs) But I want this. Yeah. And it's like every meal, like, I basically had to share because I would be like, I'll get my breakfast. Do you want anything? And he'd be like, no. Mm. I'll make toast and I'll be eating. He's like, what's this? Can I try? (laughs) And it's like, oh, of course you can. I love you. (laughs) (gasps) <gasps> yeah I'm definitely like not at the place where kids seem feasible at the moment either because it's like I'm very aware of the fact that you know once there is a kid that you have to take care of in front of you you like whatever you want is as you said just not as important anymore and I'm not sure if I'm ready for that yet I'm I'm quite liking where I am right now, where it's like, I just need to, like, feed, clothe, and house myself, and, like, make sure my shit is together. And that's hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, they're expensive. No. It's, um, there was a total tangent. I'm sorry. It's just been, like, my life for the past five <laughs> okay. days. I got, I got home this morning. I was like, yes, gonna eat things by myself. What's yes. up? <laughs> it's also been really good, because, um... That's the thing about working in childhood disorders is you get super paranoid. So when my cousin was pregnant with this wee tyke, this two-year-old, 
Mm. I was like so stressed out until mm-hmm. she was like, no, I've had like a full genetic panel done. Like it's fine. Like we know that he's not going to have any like known early onset childhood disorders. And I was just like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> because like that's when you spend all of your time like reading about these disorders, you can like mm. logically know what their yeah. incidences are. And like, the incidence for mitochondrial disorders are pretty high, to be honest. Yeah. So, like, that's not helpful. Um, but you still just go, like, oh, but what if what if you have it? That would be really sad because I know everything that happens because I've read, like, 20 papers about it. Like, yeah. oh. So that's the one downside to working in, like, health sciences. Mm. You have too many feelings. Yeah, ignorance really is bliss. I only found out maybe a couple of months back that miscarriage was, like, super, super common. Mm, particularly in younger women. Yeah. And, like, I had no idea. I Because the only experience I have with pregnancy is, like, my mom having my baby sister. Mm. And she just seemed to have it and popped out. She was fine. Cool. And I always thought miscarriage was this, like, hugely traumatic thing. And sometimes it is. But apparently, like, it's incredibly common one in four i think the um estimates are one in three to one in four um Mm. a lot of women a lot of people have miscarriages don't necessarily know it's happening like it could just be like a super shitty period for them yeah yeah because like before uh, and there was a very good science versus episode on it um quite recently about abortion and they talk about miscarriage and stuff as well but like in the first trimester you can't see the fetus Mm -hmm. so if you bled out a fetus that's a terrible set of words to say um (laughs) but like you wouldn't necessarily know yeah um and particularly in younger women it's very common essentially the idea is that your uterus is pretty fussy when you're younger Uh and it's just like "Mm, this baby might not be the best baby so (laughs) fine (laughs) whereas when you get older and that's why we talk about things like maternal age factors your body's more likely to be like nah this seems chill we should keep it that's fascinating i had no idea oh really oh i had no idea that like it was more common when you're younger, because usually, like, problems start happening when you're older, right? There can be more difficulties in conceiving when you're older. Yeah. Uh, and if you've had, like, no history of having kids, then that's where you might see, like, you're having miscarriages when you attempt to conceive when you're older, but it's quite likely that you're already at a mi- risk of miscarriage. Yeah. I think there's also the thing that, like, if you're a bit older, your body might just suck a bit more. Mm. Sorry, old people. <laughs> you probably know this from experience. <laughs> I have a... My back sore all the time now. Like I yeah. feel like I'm one of you. <laughs> it's okay. We're we're all gonna get there someday. <laughs> when I talked to my um my old high school, I told them that adulthood was just like having a bad back and wishing you exercise more. Yeah, can confirm. Periods tend to suck more when you're a teenager as opposed to like when you sort of hit your twenties. And like this is why I did not get taken seriously about how incredibly bad my periods were for like Ooh. seven years because they were like oh. You're just going through puberty. And then it's like, oh, it's the end of puberty. Your hormones go crazy. It's wild. And then eventually it was like, oh, this might be a problem. And now I have recurrent ovarian cysts. So whatever, I guess. Damn. Maybe I'm just like not cut out for a uterus. I don't know. Body Bodies are weird. I'd upload myself to the cloud. I don't know if I would. That's a question and a half. <laughs> you can think about it while I talk about like why I would... Actually, why I would is very short. Yeah. I, and like sort of a trigger warning for all of this, because I'm going to talk about my mental illness a bit. Like, I've had depression 
at least since I was 14, probably before that, I've self-harmed, I've tried to kill myself like six times, which means I'm like pretty chill with taking risks. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh. ah, I've tried to kill myself so much, like, this seems like fun, I might as well do it, like, <laughs> how badly could it go? Like, 15-year-old Sophia finally gets to like, live in her truth. <laughs> if like, it goes, if it breaks like, the most bad it could possibly break, or it's really fun and cool. And so, like, I don't blow myself to the cloud because, like, either it works and I live in a computer or it doesn't work. And it's like, well, this is going to happen anyway. That's so interesting because my hesitancy comes from, like, almost a similar reason. I don't want to be immortal. <laughs> that's that's kind of a terrifying prospect, being immortal. I mean, I presume if you live in the cloud, you can, like, delete yourself, right? Maybe, but like I know I'd never want to. But also, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have to rely on serotonin anymore, Serena. And my serotonin is so bad. That would be pretty handy. Oh my gosh, this is like very Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Just go on a summer holiday. Have you read that? Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I I've said it for my students. That is how much I've read it. Oh, fantastic! It's one of it's one of my all time favorites. Yeah, what a what a weird. And kind of terrifying concept. Would you take a drug that made you happy? It depends. How addictive is it? How long does it last? How much does it cost? <laughs> I don't know. Like, if it made you happy, but it also made you complacent, would you take it? I don't think so. Okay. No. Because, like, um, and like, I'm on antidepressants, uh, and they're amazing, and they've, like, literally given me my life back, and I certainly support the use of medication for yeah, people. Yeah. Particularly, like, antidepressants and also Valium, which is amazing. But I think, like, the drug in Brave New World, do you remember the name for it? Soma. Yeah. So Soma, like, the point of it was that it made people happy, but it also made them complacent with how things were. Yeah. I don't think I would take something if it meant I was complacent. Because even when I take something like Valium, like, I'm less stressed out, but I'm not, like chill with how things are I'm still like ambitious I'm still like driving towards things I just like no longer feel like my heart is gonna bump out of my chest you know yeah yeah. I guess in the case of Soma it's because I saw it as a metaphor for things that were not technically drugs I saw it as a metaphor for things like mindless tv shows um for things like I don't know theme parks (laughs) you know those those things that make you happy and that are fun, um, that take a lot of time. And also, like, take you away from the issues at hand. Yeah. And, like, I don't I don't want to advocate against that because I am all for binging TV. Like, like <laughs> sometimes when you're not feeling quite right and you need a distraction, you know, sometimes that's really important to take time out for yourself to kind of, like, say I'm going to put pause on the outside world right now and just dive into a TV show or a novel or, you know, whatever, or a video game. But at the same time, I think the the whole premise of Brave New World, the whole setting was a metaphor for how our society indulges a little bit too much on the uh, the unplugging from reality side of it. I think Fahrenheit 451 almost does that particular analogy better have you read fahrenheit 451 no i haven't oh it's real good like ray bradbury has said some fucked up stuff about like women in media Mm -hmm. um so that's fun (laughs) but 
Fahrenheit 451 is actually just amazing. Um, and essentially, spoilers, skip <laughs> the next, like, minute if you don't want to know the end of, like, some of the major plot points in Fahrenheit 451, but it's like, this guy's wife is the one that's kind of addicted to TV shows and, like, spends all her time doing it. And throughout the course of the book, she tries to kill herself. And he says, but, you know, I didn't know that anything was wrong. And it, I think that was, like, quite nice, nice, quite compelling in the sense that, like, even though she had something to try and unplug and try and engage in, there was still something missing from her life. Yeah. And, like, there were still underlying issues that couldn't be fixed by that. Absolutely. Whereas I don't know if Brave New World, like, hmm. Brave New World hasn't aged wonderfully in a no. lot of its contentions. Like, I think it's most interesting when you read, like, the beginning descriptions of, like, the embryology surrounding that. Like, that's so cool to me. Like, the fact that Huxley, it's Aldous Huxley, yep. was writing that shit in, like, the 30s. I know. Like, that's amazing. So like, good. I read that and I'm just like, oh, you're so good at science, my dude. Which yeah. is, like, understandable, because I think his grandfather was T.H. Huxley, who was a guy that was, like, known as Darwin's bulldog, who, like, went and yelled at people about evolution. <laughs> like, he was born into being an angry scientist. Um, I don't... I think, like, the discussion of how Native people are treated in reservations is still, like, really relevant to America today. I don't know if, like the ideas about unplugging are necessarily as relevant as, like, the kind of more nuanced discussion, almost, that you get in Fahrenheit 451. Mm, yeah. There is a lot of um, confusing confusing stuff about, like, religion and stuff in there as well. Yeah, there is. Which is, <laughs> oh. which is like, oh, I'm not sure where you're going with this, man. But definitely, like, unplugging, quote-unquote unplugging, from the world is for sure a temporary thing. Because I do find myself, like, when I'm, I don't know, binge-watching a TV series or playing Skyrim for, like, the 60th hour, you get to a point where you're very aware of how, quote-unquote, unplugged you are. Like, you're very aware of all the things that you're not doing. And it kind of, like, makes my mental state worse rather than better, so... Yeah. Moderation. Everything in moderation, really. Take drugs in moderation. Please follow your doctor's prescriptions. <laughs> I mean, I think, like, those kind of dystopian future novels are very interesting to read. Hmm. Both, like, in the context of the history of literature, but also in, like, how they reflect both the sociological issues at the time and today. So I think, like, um, I believe it's Arthur Kosler, who's a Hungarian writer who wrote Darkness at Noon, mm -hmm. which is very much like a, a book written in Soviet times yeah. and a fear about like the Soviets. Like that was the fear that he was writing about. Yeah. Like reading that is fascinating in the same way, like reading Tishan Liu is fascinating because it gives you like this window into cultural touchstones of like that a lot of Chinese people would have. I think reading We by Zamiyatin is also, like, very good. And I don't know how to say his name, but it's kind of spelled like that. It was originally written in Russian, and it formed some of the inspiration for both Brave New World in 1984. And reading that is also fascinating in the sense that you can see where elements were drawn from it for Brave New World in 1984. But also, like, a Russian's idea of what a dystopian future would look like where everything is monitored. Like, that's... So cool to me, but also like, where we're we going, so whatever, I guess. Don't need to read dystopian novels, we can just live in it. 
Oh my gosh, that was like every single news headline from, I want to say, about 2014 onwards. I think that was the year uh, that the Michael Brown shooting happened in Ferguson. And every single headline from then on was just like, how how is this real? How am I where I am? I just don't understand. It's like Flint, Michigan hasn't had clean drinking water for two years. Yeah. It's in the US. That's a first world country, apparently. Even now, my brain is just not able to comprehend. Ugh. I just... Do you want me to tell you about the Uber driver I had today? That can do for a bit. Yeah. So I I still have to catch Uber sometimes. Sorry, I know you listened to the last episodes. <laughs> it's my life, okay? Yeah. Um... Sheba isn't always available. So it's alright, I do my best. My Uber driver today uh, used to live in Auckland, so we're having a really good chat about New Zealand and moving to Australia and like talking about the two countries. And then he was like, oh, you know, the main problem with Auckland is crime. And this is a Sri Lankan man. He told me about some of his family back in Sri Lanka. It's like, main problem is crime. Because, you know, the Pacific Islanders, they just do a lot of crime and they fight a lot. And I was like, oh my god. All right, how's this? How's how's this Uber ride going? Yeah, shit, it's it's an adventure, eh? Oh. and then like oh. later on in the ride, he asked me if I was mixed because I had curly hair, uh. and I was like, "Is it your business if I am?" I think maybe we shouldn't ask strangers or even people we know quite well about their race. Ooh, ooh, ooh that's. That's an awkward ride. How how long was it? It was about half an hour. Oh my god. It was wild. When he started talking wow. about how Tongans always fight, I was like, great! How fun is this? <laughs> Did you look for the hidden camera? Did you ask <laughs> if you were getting punked? <laughs> no, I was just like, hmm, that's an opinion. Because <laughs> I really wanted him to take me home. <laughs> Oh yeah, the um, thing I was about to mention, and I'm not sure how coherently I can describe this, but when you were talking about how interesting it is to read different sci-fi stories and look at how it reflects upon the society that it was written in and um, the society that we live in right now, my flatmate was telling me about this really interesting theory looking at horror films and how horror films reflect a society's deepest, darkest fears of that time. When you look at things like Godzilla, it's a, it's a Japanese reaction to the devastation left behind of the atomic bomb. When you look at things like um, when vampire movies were first a thing in like the 60s and 70s, you could see that as kind of like a coded response to the trauma behind AIDS, when zombie films were like a really big thing, you could like view that as a response to the the human on human violence of their time, and it's an interesting look upon the history of society and the fears throughout each generation through horror films and horror genres. That that's that's really interesting. I don't watch horror films because I get too scared and then I and then I cry um I cry in most films but like that's that's not the point here no I think that that's probably very accurate 
um, possibly zombie films and the rise that we've seen throughout our like sort of adult lives has also been somewhat founded in the way a lot of mm, grown-ups perceive phones and social media as something that's like turning us into sort of mindless zombies rather than the incredibly I think a lot of young people are incredibly critical and self-aware as a result of the access they have to like unlimited information through their phones Mm. but I think the fear surrounding that was definitely something that also prompted zombie films yeah and it's really interesting looking at like what types of things are scary I think the last sort of horror-ish film I saw was Prometheus which is oh the alien franchise yeah, yeah yeah But with Numi Rapace in it, who I love, like, I would marry her cheekbones. (laughs) I didn't, like, I get really badly affected by jump scares, which is why, like, I don't go and see horror films, because, like, it just makes me so uncomfortable to experience jump jump scares. Jump scares are the worst. Yeah. They're they're cheap scares. A lot of the films I've seen advertised lately, like, the scary parts of them have been this idea that someone is watching you that you don't know about. Mm. or like something along those lines and so that is that is essentially the um co-opting of technology to affect our lives and like people talk about black mirror and they talk about black mirror as having been like a scary third season and (laughs) basically the entire like conceit of black mirror and i'm stealing from mallory Otberg right now i believe is what if technology but bad (laughs) except for san junipero which is what if technology but lesbians So if you're going to watch Black Mirror, watch San Junipero and don't watch any other episode. Um, And I think, like, what people find scary about that is both, like, the potential for our society to end up there, but also the co-opting of things that they use so much in their daily lives. So in the sense that, like, people who use agendas and timetables on their phones um, have a lot more difficulty remembering timetables than people who don't. So, like, I don't put a lot of meetings or anything in my phone. And so, like, I will always have, like, a ticking list in my head of things like that. And if I could outsource that, maybe I'd think about different things, but my phone's a piece of shit, so I can't do that. But I do have, like, everyone's contact details in my phone. And if that got co-opted or, like, taken away from me, I wouldn't be able to contact people. That would explain why I never know what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) That would be one of the things that's affecting that. (laughs) Because if, if you were to ask me what was going on tomorrow, I would have to look at my calendar. I, I would. Yeah. I was chatting to someone and, like, trying to arrange hanging out next week, and they were like, I can't do this without my diary. And I'm like, do you not always have this in your head? Nope. I am offloading processing power and memory. I mean, part of it for me and the reason I don't do that is trying to separate work and home time. Yeah, that's good. And so, like, the social events I go to are often Facebook events, so they're relegated there and I can check them when I need to. My work events are on my work calendar, so I will get notifications while I'm at work. And then there's, like, nothing else that happens in my life, so <laughs> I just don't put events in my phone. That, that's that's a good, that's, like, good work personal life hygiene. Yeah, I do my best, because I know how prone I am to going crazy. Oh, I had one last thing, which was um, just how interesting it is when we, because before we were talking about, like, would we upload ourselves into the cloud would we basically like augment ourselves with computers and we kind of already do yeah like i offload my memories onto this little machine that i'm talking to you on every single day and like that's not in my brain anymore that's just it's 
gone from me, it's outside of me. So, yeah, I don't think we're too far away from being in the cloud. And on that note... <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Things of Interest. I've been Sophia Franks. I have been, and hopefully always will be, <laughs> I might be uploaded to the cloud next week, so who really knows? Really, thanks for listening. Um, if you can, rate us on iTunes, leave a review, pop us some stars, that would be really useful. If you could tell a friend as well, if you liked what you heard, if you liked another episode, if you yeah, want to report us to the overall authority, <laughs> which might be established in the next two weeks, like go for that. It'd be great. More ears on our podcast. Fantastic. As always, you can contact us on Twitter, we're at Casting Interest. On Facebook, I think we're Things of Interest. And we also have an email address, old school email, if you want to send us any voice memos, any thoughts that you might have. That's, uh, shit, what was it? Castinginterest at gmail.com. That's the one. I wrote it down, so I can't remember <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you offloaded it to the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> and as always, stay interesting. See you next time. <laughs>